Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today is an extraordinarily special day. We are celebrating 1,500 podcast downloads for Everybody Hates Me. Let's talk about stigma by having two fantastic guests. Our guest, number one, just in order, but not in order of importance or specialness, is Dr. Lori Ross. She is an associate professor in social and behavioral health sciences at Dalalana School of Public Health at University of Toronto. She's an affiliate scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and she's also leader of this fantastic team that I would love to be part of called Researching for LGBTQ Health with the RE colon searching, such a cool title. She uses qualitative, quantitative work, community-based research, and her real focus is looking at mental health and service needs of marginalized people, including LGBTQ people. And our second fantastic guest, who you may recognize from a previous episode, is Dr. Travis Salway, Assistant Professor of the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. He's a social epidemiologist. He has 18 years of experience working with LGBTQ people, and he looks at population health inequities. We had so much fun on our podcast together, we decided we wanted to co-host with Dr. Lori Ross, who we're big fans of. So welcome, Lori. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel very flattered that you and Travis wanted to interview me for this. So that's a highlight of my day so far. <laughs> Great. Travis, how are you doing in your beautiful spot on Vancouver Island? I'm very, very excited that we have a chance to talk to Lori. I'm a huge fan of Lori Ross's work and really excited to be back on the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Carmen. Amazing. So Lori, Travis and I are physically distancing in an elevator with you and we have one flight to go up, one floor to go up in the elevator. What do you do? What's your work all about? I would say my work is all about making sure that folks who experience marginalization can get access to the health care that they need. And so that involves looking at what kind of barriers and experiences people are having, which includes stigma, and also understanding what their health care needs are and understanding and appreciating that those needs are really different depending on how people are positioned in the world in terms of sexual orientation, gender identity, race, class, disability, all kinds of other ways that uh, we move through the world. That is so exciting. And I know that the next question we have to get to know you, Travis and I, we really like this one because I'm, as you, I'm sure, like traveling, but maybe 
in a more sci-fi way these days in the times of COVID. We're going to show up to your house with our time machine and there's space for three of us to physically distance. And we're going to say, take us to the time and place where you decided I want to do this work. This is my passion. Mm. Okay, so that would be back during the time that I was doing my doctoral work, I guess. And I, I did my doctoral work in the area of women's mental health. And I worked in particular around mental health during pregnancy and early parenting. And when I was doing that work, I was looking around me at the conferences and the papers I was reading. And I was just struck by the fact that there was just this unwritten underlying assumption that all these women were straight. Mm. There was no no representation, no discussion at all about the fact that some of these women that were having babies and struggling with their mental health afterwards might not be straight, might have female partners, might be bisexual. And that did not align with my own personal experience as someone who is not straight. And so I started just getting curious and, and wanting to find out, like, where are these women? What are their experiences? What, what can I do to, to help get some of these stories told? So that was the, that was the very beginning. Amazing. And I realized I want to know, okay, I know how I met Lori, and I'm going to say that, but Travis, I want you and Lori to also share how you know each other. Lori, I met you, I'm sure you don't even remember, I was still a PhD student, and it was this LGBTQ psychology meeting in Michigan. I think you were there. I think you were doing a talk or something. And I remember being like, I really, really want to meet you. And you were like, I am so busy. And now I totally feel like that person. <laughs> but I'm like really happy that our paths have connected and you had a, a poverty meeting I came to and that was really fun. And then we've been able to do some work around sex workers together in Toronto. So it's been like really cool getting to know you the last few years. Plus also remember that meeting in Michigan, we had, we got to hang out in a hot tub together. We did? <laughs> yes, we did. We, got, we did remember. get to spend some time together at that meeting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you, you realize my life goal is to have a hot tub in my backyard? <laughs> it's in process. We've identified where the backyard and maybe when is the next year or two, but I I hung out in a hot tub, but I don't remember. This is a mm-hmm. yeah, we did. Because the hotel was kind of sketchy, if you remember. I don't remember. <laughs> that's hilarious, because I did not remember that that's where we met, but I clearly remember the sketchy hotel and hanging out in the hot tub with you because there were questions about whether it was a good idea to hang out in the hot tub at the sketchy hotel, but we did it anyway. I am so sad my memory is failing you this, because Travis, this links to you and then your origin story with Lori because I want to know how you met but my desire to have a hot tub blossomed on Vancouver Island when I was in a hot tub looking at the stars and seeing the ocean so I don't know if you have a hot tub where you're staying right now but if you do I'm I'm very jealous right now (laughs) but how do you how did you meet Lori because you work together right there is no hot tub, unfortunately. I'm doubly jealous. <laughs> no, I'm doubly jealous because I don't have a hot tub where I'm staying. And I did not meet Lori in a hot tub, but I wish I had. This sounds fantastic. <laughs> uh, 
I, well, I think, Laurie, I also met you when I was doing my doctorate at University of Toronto. And I think we had hoped, or I had hoped to work with you in some capacity, but, you know, various things got in the way. And so I think the more interesting, fun way of describing how I met Laurie is that she was actually an examiner for my dissertation defense. Oh, <laughs> And in getting to do that, <laughs> I got to find out how incredibly brilliant Travis is. And so then I asked him to work with me on a bunch of stuff since then. So we have been able to collaborate on a number of projects since I got to read your dissertation. And I feel very grateful for that. That is awesome. We need to have Aww, a, a hot tub meeting, Lori. everybody. Travis or Lori. Okay, I have an idea. <laughs> I'm going to be in Vancouver next May. Lori, take a vacation. Meet me in Vancouver with Travis. <laughs> we will find a hot tub and we will recreate uh, this experience. I forget, anyways. <laughs> All right. So, the reason we, ha we have you here today is you are expert in many, many things. One area of your work that I feel is super unique is around experiences of bisexual people and stigma experienced by bisexual people. And we know you from the literature, my own work, and I'm sure Travis has examples from his work that when we include like the lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer folks, it's often the bisexual folks who experience the most stigma and the worst health outcomes. Travis, have you found that in, in your work too, that there's additional stigma or disparities with bisexual folks versus say gay or, or lesbian folks? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, going back to what Lori referenced when she was an examiner for my uh, dissertation, one of the first questions Lori asked was, I was working with survey data. It was a large national survey of gay and bisexual men. And Lori asked me, you know, what assumptions are we making in the questions that we ask in those surveys um, when, when it comes to specific sexual orientations? And in reviewing the survey instrument, I found that a lot of it was written by gay men with language that really kind of prioritized or privileged experiences of gay men um, and, and in doing so kind of erased experiences of bisexual men. So when I had a chance to work with Lori on some projects where we were reviewing the literature, what we found, and I'm sure Lori will have more to say, is that across a wide range of mental health and substance use outcomes, there are consistent differences between bisexual people and lesbian and gay people um, or, or monosexual people. And this strikes me as something that has really been neglected for too long in our field. Yeah. So Lori, why should we care about bisexual people's stigma experiences. Why are they different and notable? Tell the listeners. So many reasons, Carmen. So many reasons. Share your wisdom with us. First one that I will start with that I feel like comes as a surprise to most people is that bisexual people make up the largest sexual minority group. So there are more bisexual people than there are gay and lesbian people. And that's particularly true among women. Amongst women, bisexual women outnumber lesbians pretty substantially. So this is a really large group of people that we're talking about. And that's often misunderstood, I think, because bisexuality is so invisible in our culture that people don't appreciate that. 
bisexuals are everywhere, <laughs> whether <laughs> you can recognize them or not. So that's one reason why it's really important. The other reason that Travis referenced is that bisexual people have the poorest health outcomes of any other sexual orientation group. And as Travis said, that I think has been really under-acknowledged, under-researched, under-recognized. And so we really need to understand how stigma uh, contributes to that, especially since we know that stigma is such a huge contributor to health outcomes for other sexual minority people. And then finally, the other reason why it's really important is because stigma is experienced differently by bisexual people mm. than by gay and lesbian people. There are very specific forms or manifestations of stigma that are particular to bisexual identity that are not experienced by gay and lesbian people. So bisexual people experience a lot of the same forms of stigma on the basis of their same-sex relationships or attractions, but there's also this additional layer of stigma that's particular to bisexuality that's experienced as well. So it's really, it's, it's unique and it appears to be having really substantial contributions to these poor health outcomes that we see among bisexuals. Why do you think that there's so much more stigma or that stigma experiences among bisexual people are, I don't know if they're higher experiences or there's just more of them. Why do you think bisexual people are stigmatized? Well, there's a lot of really interesting thinking and writing about this, but I think one of the really important reasons is that bisexual people experience stigma not only from heterosexual people, but also from gay and lesbian people. Mm. So um, there's like these, these two different communities from which folks are experiencing stigma. And unlike a lot of gay and lesbian people, many if not most bisexual people are not connected to a community of other bisexual people that can help them buffer those stigma experiences. Um, mm -hmm. Because we know that being part of a community of like others and having that community to help you reframe those experiences as, as being about stigma, about something external, as opposed to something internal with you, that's a really important way to kind of mitigate the potential psychological impact of experiencing stigma, right? So for many bisexual people, that's not available. Mm -hmm. um, even in a huge city like Toronto, the bisexual community is relatively small and for many folks difficult to find and access. So, so I think that's, that's really important that we're experiencing stigma from these two different places and not necessarily having a safe space to kind of mm. uh, process and manage that stigma. Travis, do you have any thoughts? I'm sure you have many. You know, just to say, you know, as a gay man that like I've, you said at the intro, you know, I've spent a long time working in quote unquote LGBTQ spaces. And I think we all have our own forms of privilege and advantage and that both, I think, you know, for me as a gay man gave me access to certain kinds of information and, you know, networks, but also create blind spots. And for me, I think working with Lori really helped me understand the ways in which LGBTQ as it's often used in our programs and in our community services really particularly privileges some letters of that acronym and not others. And when I, you know, I'm out here on the West Coast and when I finally reached out again through the work I was doing with Lori to um, the only group that I'm aware of in Vancouver that's working with the bisexual community you know, my eyes really were wide open to, to learn about the many ways in which, as Laurie said, this large population of people who are also uh, members of that LGBTQ umbrella really have been made to feel invisible or left behind in so many services that just 
make a default assumption that if we're talking about queer or LGBTQ, we're primarily talking about gay or lesbian. And I think the, the effects that has on how people feel socially and psychologically um, are really profound. Well, Lori, I'm wondering if you could walk us through like what stigma might look like. You know, you mentioned it might happen in everyday life, like from the same actors, you know, uh, that, you know, another sexually diverse person might experience. And there might also be stigma within a community of LGBTQ people. Maybe, do you mind giving us an example of each? Like what a, with like a human walking through the world might experience these. Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe I'll share one experience from my own life and then another experience from my research. So in terms of what it looks like within the queer community, I can think about an experience I had when my first kid was small and I wanted to go to like one of the queer mom and baby groups that was running out of, I think the 519 maybe or something. Um, And at that time, I was partnered with my kid's dad, and I went to this group, and I realized really quickly that I was going back into the closet, basically, because I noticed myself censoring pronouns in speaking about her other parent. And I realized that that was because the space was implicitly set up for women who were partnering, partnering parenting with other women. It was not set up for me. And I didn't go back because that felt really uncomfortable and I didn't want to feel like I was censoring myself or, or going back in the closet. Um, and instead, eventually I found uh, they had another group that was inclusive of trans families as well. And so there I felt totally comfortable because there nobody's making assumptions about what your sexual identity is based on the pronouns that your partner uses. And so it felt like that was a much safer space for me to Mm. be able to participate in queer community as someone who was bisexual and at that time partnered a man. So that's that's one experience that I had personally. In terms of stigma from the straight community, there are so many stereotypes about bisexuality as being about sexual deviance, basically. So that bisexual people are, I don't know, I find this very difficult to talk about without sounding like I'm shaming particular sexual practices, which I do not intend to do. But there are stereotypes that bisexual people cannot be monogamous, and that clearly is important through some people's views. Um, There are stereotypes that bisexual people must have more than one partner of different genders at all times, that they can't be trusted in kind of the context of an intimate relationship. And so those stereotypes play out for people when they try to talk to their straight friends and family about their identities. And so I can think about one participant in one of our research studies who talked about coming out to his sister who said something along the lines of, I wish I could tell people that you were my gay brother instead of this slutty person who just sleeps with everyone. So obviously that manifests this idea that bisexuality is particularly deviant and dangerous and undesirable in a way that clearly was really painful from him coming from his sister. So yeah, so it it can manifest in a lot of different ways, but definitely at the root of it, there are these ideas that we hold as a society about bisexuality that are really problematic and that don't reflect the experiences of most bisexual people, but that we've sort of come up against in our everyday interactions. So in some ways, it feels like stigma is is an interesting operator because in some ways it makes people invisible. And then when it does make people visible, it's almost in a particular way that just exaggerates 
aspects of stereotypes which is really interesting, just the way that, that there's the stigma within even LGBTQ communities or straight communities works the same way as to create this sort of immoral, untrustworthy archetype, which is... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I know, like, I've, <laughs> I've had conversations with friends in my own social circle who have talked about how they would not date bisexual people. And I'm sitting there thinking like, oh my God, like I'm kind of an expert in bisexual stigma. I can't believe we're having this conversation, but okay, tell me why you feel like you can't date bisexual people. And it's because there's this sense that they can't be trusted, that they're going to always be looking for something else that they can't provide because they're interested as well in partners of a different gender. And that's so problematic, right? Because if I am mm-hmm. going to leave my partner, it's not going to necessarily or even likely be because of their gender. Maybe it's because they're a jerk or because <laughs> I prefer someone who's taller or like, you know, there are just so many reasons why, you know, relationships don't work out. To think that the gender of someone's partner is like the fundamental thing that defines for you what's important to you in a relationship is just not consistent with the experience of, of most bisexual people. So yeah, it's really, uh, it's really present. It's really present in, in everyday interactions and in all kinds of domains of our lives. It almost sounds like people in a, a same gender or opposite gender relationship, regardless if they're bisexual or not, could be attracted to other humans, right? It's not like you're, you have this attraction switch that is like only on for for people mm-hmm. who are bisexual. It's like everybody has an attraction switch, you know, that is on and off in various ways. It's not as if bisexual people are unique in possibly being attracted to somebody other than the person that they're dating. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think that because there are these social stereotypes that bisexual people aren't capable of monogamy, need to have partners of different genders at all times, are generally just hypersexual, basically, is kind of, I think, sort of mm. at the root of these stereotypes. I think that that's why people conceptualize it in that way. And, and like, if you go on dating sites, especially for women, you will see sometimes noted that not interested in bisexual people. So it's very, it can be really, really explicit, especially, I feel like, among women. Wow. Travis, what are your thoughts from the, can, the, Lori, the I, man perspective? Yeah. I just have a reflection on Lori's story that she shared about going to the parenting group that was really telling for me. I think, Lori, you said, you know, you found yourself kind of censoring the pronouns you were using and talking to other people in this group. And it reminded me recently, Carmen, you had Tonya Poteet on talking about the experience of trans people before they leave the home and kind of the thought process they go through around like how do I need to present myself to the world and what are the various you know benefits and costs of presenting as my true self in terms of how I dress and how I appear to other people Um, and it just reminds me that I think someone could easily listen to your story Lori and think like okay well that's just one space but I think the picture you're painting here is that it's a series of stressful events and decisions that bisexual people are having to make every day throughout their day and in lots of different settings that probably adds up to create kind of a, a, I don't know, a cumulative experience of stress that that's, um, as you said earlier, really different and and in in many ways greater than what people who are gay or lesbian or heterosexual might experience. And I think that's important that those 
I think what we would call microaggressions or, you know, moments of kind of decisions or reflections about ourselves just add up over time. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, and I think one thing that people often don't think about is that for bisexual people, every coming out is an explicit coming out because there is no assumption that can be made on the basis of who your partner is in that moment. So like, so even with people who you are dating, you have to make a choice about when and how to come out to them as a bisexual person, right? Like there's, there, every coming out needs to be kind of deliberate and explicit in a way that, you know, when I'm partnered with a woman, I don't need to come out as someone who is queer because that's like, the, the, our relationship does that work for me. Once people know that I'm in this relationship, then people know that I'm not straight. But if I want people to know that I'm bisexual, I have to explicitly say that every single time. And yeah, there are a lot of decisions that go into when that feels safe to do and, and how to do that in a way that's going to be comfortable. What the cost benefits are of that, I think, as you're alluding to, Travis. It's so, like, it feels so overwhelming to think that, you know, people are experiencing stigma, like, from every, every angle. What can the listeners do? Like, how can an everyday person, regardless of their <laughs> sexual identity or um, expression, what can they do to stop the stigma towards bisexual people? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is just to really check your assumptions about it, right? Like, I think we do make assumptions about what people's sexual identity is based on who they're partnered with. And so I think that just like interrupting that thought process for yourself and giving people space to kind of define themselves for you when they're comfortable in doing that. I do think you know, being the parent of a 13-year-old, I do have a lot of optimism that this is changing and shifting because I think that the ways that young people are thinking about sexual identity are really different from when I was growing up and coming out. And so I see amongst her and her peer group a really different attitude towards bisexuality, pansexuality, you know, other sexual identities and also non-binary gender identities too. Like I, I feel like young people are much less caught up in this idea of a binary, that things need to be defined in a binary way, which I think is really why bisexuality is so uncomfortable for people, that, that like we can't be fit neatly into a particular box. And I think that's maybe also why we see often a lot of allyship between bi and trans communities, because we're both really struggling against this uh, idea of a necessary binary. But young people don't, many of them don't think that way and so I feel like there's going to be a shift over time and I yeah I hope that I hope that things look quite different for my daughter and and her peer group when they're interacting with the world in the ways that I did. I feel like young people and I know that on some of the podcasts we've talked about this a little bit but young people are like we don't want your labels your categories we're just going to like explode them and, and do something much more fluid and much more free which is liberating for all of us. I was doing a presentation yesterday, which was highly stressful for grade seven to grade 10 year olds about LGBT issues. And I was like, why did I agree to do this? And you know, it was very stressful. And I don't know if your daughter's in that age group, most of the young people weren't saying anything, but there was one person who kept kind of piping up and he was, because when I was like, you, you could come to Pride, you could do this, you know, just like things that people could do to kind of connect with LGBTQ community, because they weren't, I don't know if any 
I have zero idea about people's sexual gender identity who are on this Zoom summer camp. But he said, what? I thought pride was just if you were LGBTQ. And I was like, no. I'm like, it's for everybody. It just sort of like his, it just sort of like was really cool that this young person was like, oh, I'll totally come then. And I just feel like there's this openness. And I was talking to them about how all of us are hurt by LGBTQ stigma. You know, like all of us are, are hurt when we're boxed into a category, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, it's really interesting to see how they're kind of traveling that and problematizing that. But at the same time, like having to figure it out, like, you know, having conversations with my kid about the idea that it's perfectly okay and normal that your sexual identity label that you choose to use shifts over your lifetime. Like at 13, mm-hmm. you don't need to decide who you're going to be for the rest of your life, right? And examples from my own experience of how my identity has shifted and changed over the years for me. And so I, I feel like there's still this sense of like trying to understand what, what society is throwing at them, um, which is a lot, right? And, and, and it's a lot that makes bisexuality and other non-monosexual identities, by which I mean identities where folks are attracted to individuals of more than one gender. It makes those invisible. Like when you think about where you see bisexuality in popular culture until really, really recently, mostly it was stories where somebody's sexual identity changed, right? There was no recognition that maybe their sexuality was consistently bisexual, but their partner changed Mm. over time. So it's really new, in fact, like in the last couple of years only that we've actually had kind of storylines on TV and in films where people are bisexual for the entire thing, um, which really contributes to the stigma that bisexuality isn't real, that it's like people are confused, it's a transition state. Those stereotypes make it really hard for people to embrace a bisexual identity for themselves as something that could be healthy, that could be stable, and that it could be safe to talk to other people about. Wow. Travis, what are you thinking? Listeners, Travis is yeah, not I, visible I, to us. You know, <laughs> that's why I have to ask you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for checking in. You know, I when I was on your podcast uh, a few weeks ago, Carmen, we talked about conversion therapy, and the more I learn about and think about conversion therapy, which are attempts to change someone's uh, sexual orientation or gender identity or expression in a way that's kind of predetermined, that starts with a certain assumption that something is better than something else, and that something that's better is usually heterosexuality or, uh, you know, or cisgender um, identities and expressions. I, I'm thinking more and more, like the problem, the root problem, you know, which Lori talked about when she said, you know, check your assumptions, is just that we all seem to have, not all of us, but many of us, and certainly, you know, our dominant culture has some preferences or some tendencies that they would want us to move toward. And I think one of them is heterosexuality. But as, you know, as um, Laurie said, it's almost as if, you know, there's this implicit idea among us that, okay, if you're not going to be heterosexual, then you have to fit into this neat category. And this obsession with having people in these specific categories and feeling like we, those of us, like external to individuals should have some kind of control over this um, is really the root of so many of these problems around stigma. It's just, we can't let go of these fixed ideas. And I think like a really exciting alternative that, 
you're talking about, Laurie, in terms of, you know, the next generation is that we might just allow people to be who they are and not have to defend it and not have to define it or describe it. I think I recently saw an article about, you know, a kind of quote unquote robust evidence for bisexuality that really made me think like, wow, how did we get to a place where people's own experiences and identities does not count as the most robust form of evidence? <laughs> I think there's just a deep rooted tendency to want to, you know, believe we know what's best for other people when it comes to sex or relationships and, and, and gender. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, and I do think that that's so from my research, what people have told me is that there's this clear hierarchy, that heterosexuality is the preferred identity that we're all supposed to fit into. And if we can't, then we should at least be good gay or lesbian people who essentially look like heterosexual people, right? And, and not just in terms of not being bisexual, but in turn, when we think about like race and class and our family structure and all those things, like, yeah, there's this hierarchy and bisexual people, particularly bisexual people of color, bisexual people living in poverty, bisexual people with disability, are definitely at the bottom of that hierarchy in terms of the, the imagined desirable identity for people. That's so important. And I think the listeners can really uh, join us in constantly engaging in reflection around what do we know or where have we learned about bisexual people? What are the messages they're getting in the media, in our communities? What are our own feelings about this sort of ambiguity? So this fluidity of gender or gender partners and people not necessarily wanting just to, you know, to put themselves in a, in a category that makes other people feel comfortable, you know? I think a lot of it is just that becoming aware of our own thoughts, and then, then you start noticing things around you that you can start to question, you know? Absolutely. And I think particularly when we're, when we're talking about this to gay and lesbian folks, I think one of, one of the roots of stigma towards bisexuality coming from gay and lesbian community is this notion of heterosexual privilege, right? The idea that a bisexual person can partner with someone of a different gender and so pass as straight. And so there are ways in which absolutely heterosexual privilege plays out in ways that can benefit bisexual people. Like I remember the first time I checked into a hotel with a male partner after having done that, you know, several times in my past with a female partner and nobody asked me if we needed two beds. Right? Ah, this is, this is different. Hmm. Or you you book, you book a king bed and then they give you two single beds. You're like, what? This isn't what I booked. Exactly. Exactly. Like I had experienced (laughs) that many times. And so I saw, so that was a moment for me where it was like, ah, this is heterosexual privilege. What is happening to me right here that I don't have to fight with this guy to explain to him what kind of bed I need. But also (laughs) I, uh, these words have stuck with me from, from my colleague Greta Bauer, who does amazing work. And she was speaking about it in relation to uh, experiences of trans folks, but it's not a privilege to pass as something that you don't want to pass as. So Mm. the flip side of that heterosexual privilege Mm. is invisibility. 
And that invisibility can be really damaging, right? Like it cuts us off from Mm -hmm. potential communities of support. It gives us this sense of of isolation and it puts the burden on us of having to disclose over and over and over again, as we talked about before. So I think that's really, we really need to kind of pick that apart, that notion of heterosexual privilege and what that really does for or to bisexual people. Mm. Because it's really not the simple, simple picture that I think a lot of gay and lesbian folks believe. Wow, you're so awesome. I, I'm so grateful you you really broke it down for us. And I know Travis, it's been so great to talk to you about stigma and really get this deep perspective on the complexity of bisexual stigma. Travis, I'm gonna put you on the spot because we're gonna move into the wild card section right now. Travis. Do you want to ask the first wild card question? Any okay. question you want for Lori. <laughs> Can I just disclose first that Ooh. when I listened to Travis's podcast, this was the part I found most terrifying. <laughs> so be, be gentle with me, Travis. <laughs> um, okay, well, here's a gentle lob for you, Lori. You talked about visibility by sexual people in the media and how it's really only recently that we've started to see characters where their sexual identity isn't questioned or isn't changing over the course of the narrative. So I'm wondering if you could plug for our listeners one or two shows that they should check out to really get a sense of a portrayal of a bisexual character that's really compelling. Sure. Yes. Okay. That's a good one. I like that one. Thanks, Travis. So uh, this comes from (laughs) with my 13 year old daughter. Um, And we are huge fans of Rosa Diaz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I love her character. And I love the way her coming out was handled in the show. It just felt really authentic to me, both in terms of her coming out to her co-workers and her coming out to her family. I thought that was a really beautiful storyline. And so that that is one character that I, I have really not seen. I've not seen. So, it's Brooklyn Nine Nine is the show. Brooklyn Nine Nine is the show. And let me tell you, it was not on my list of shows to watch. We ended up watching it because it was on my 13-year-old's list of shows to watch. But it was totally <laughs> worth it for that piece for me. So, yeah, awesome. that, that would be that would be my big plug. Travis, do you have? I love this. Do you have another wild card for Lori? If not, I can do it, but I just throwing it out to you on the West Coast right now. Thanks. I'm going to let you go. I'm still, ta- I'm still taking in the suggestion to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is <laughs> a show that I feel like I would have dismissed if not for this plug. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm upping my uh, Netflix and um, media list through my podcast. <laughs> okay, Lori, you can go. Anywhere in the world for dinner with anybody ever anywhere. Where do you go? Who do you take? Okay, so I, so I'm a single parent. I've been at home with my kids uh, since March. <laughs> and so I actually, so for me, there is not some like famous or historical figure that I want to go have dinner with. I really, I just want to go have dinner with my important people who I have been missing very much during this time. Walked down, so that that would be my pick. And where would you take them? Where's where your favorite restaurant? Go? I don't know. I would like to travel. I feel because I, I'm sure, like both of you, I feel very, you know, kind of worried and regretful about like wondering what travel looks like in a in a post COVID world. And so I think I would like 
to go somewhere far. Maybe um, I, several years ago now, had a really wonderful trip to Southeast Asia. And, and nice. um, part of what we did there was we went to Borneo and went to a market where we bought all these amazing ingredients, including curry paste that was like put together while we were right there. And wow. Delicious chicken curry. And so maybe I would do that. Maybe that's what I would pick. Oh my gosh. Okay. I would totally go to Borneo with you. I've never been there. That sounds amazing. I bet there's uh, a hot tub too. Oh, yes. In the ocean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we have one last question and then maybe we'll just wrap it up. The last question. What is a wonderful piece of advice or wisdom that you have found helpful that you want to share with the listeners? Oh, that's tricky. So many different great pieces of advice for so many different contexts. of. of you can get more than one if you want. <laughs> mm, I think, I mean, okay, so from an academic perspective, for any academics who might be listening, one piece of advice that I got from my postdoc supervisor that I think about over and over and over again when you are writing a paper and you're submitting it to a journal is that if you don't get rejected on your first submission, you didn't aim high enough. And that advice has served me really well over the years because I have tried for journals that I thought would never accept my paper. And then sometimes they do. And then that means that you get this broader reach for work, especially work when we're working in the area of queer and trans health. And it feels like a really niche area that sometimes broader audiences are not interested in. I feel like it's really, it's really important to push that forward. And then I think it just in terms of like life advice, I think the best advice that I've gotten from multiple sources and multiple occasions in my life is to just be in this moment right now and to try to appreciate that. And I think for me, that's been really important during COVID, especially when I've been here with my kids and trying to manage doing my job and taking care of them and hypothetically homeschooling them. And that has been really overwhelming. But at the same time, to just be in the moment of this is a really special time to have together with my kids where we really get to, you know, spend this block of time being a family together and appreciating one another and yeah, making making the best of that. So yeah, I think that's, that's advice that has served me well. That's beautiful. And it really speaks to gratitude. Like I do uh, gratitude every night. Think of three things in the day. And my partner thinks of three things that we're grateful for. And it could like literally be the sun came out and it was nice outside, you know, or, oh, the dinner was super tasty. You know, it doesn't have to be these <laughs> monumental things. It could be the, the small things. Travis, how are you? How are you doing these days with gratitude or any other life? Your life advice was, was helpful last time as well. I love writing down people's life advice. <laughs> I have a little book on it with this podcast. Yeah, I, I, I think the like the presence and gratitude advice is so important. And maybe I don't know, like the optimist in me thinks this is one thing that will maybe collectively take away from COVID is like the understanding that like your immediate experience is what you have and um, and it's for you to see the good in it and appreciate it. But I'm also just, I like, I love the first piece of advice, Lori, <laughs> both because I'm an academic and it's relevant to my life, but also because I think like one thing that I'm taking away from this interview is like, we need clinicians and scientists and 
students, not just those of us thinking about queer health, but like, you know, really broadly to be learning about and reflecting on uh, what we know about how stigma affects bisexual and other non-monosexual people. I actually think that's really important that those pieces of scientific evidence and those stories and those, you know, reflections actually make it to a really broad audience. So it makes me glad that uh, that we're that we're having you on Carmen's podcast today. And also, like, I think aiming high is a good piece of advice, even for non-academics, you know, like to be somewhat aspirational, to to dream, to think about things that maybe you never thought you could possibly do. So I think the idea of aiming a little bit higher, stretching ourselves a little bit is is good life advice as well. Yeah, I'm so grateful. Thank you both so much. Everybody, Dr. Lori Ross, Dr. Travis Alway, I am so grateful that you came. This is the first multiple person podcast. It's so exciting. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very fun. And I and I agree with Travis. I think this is such a great way to get people thinking about bisexual stigma in a way that hopefully will be, um, yeah, just get people thinking differently about how they can interact with folks in their lives who might identify as bisexual. Thanks for having us, Carmen. This was really fun again. Thank you so much, everybody. Check out our bios of our fantastic guests today. And thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen, what I have to tell you?